Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 6? For those of you who are new, we have been working our way through the book of Joshua here at Calvary on Sunday morning. This morning, we uh, find ourselves in chapter 6, which is the beginning of the second main section. The book is divided into three main sections. The first five chapters deal with entering the land is the theme. The second uh, section from chapter 6 through 21, the theme is conquering the land. And then chapters 22 to 24, holding on to or keeping the land, which, believe it or not, can be one of the hardest things to do. We'll talk about that when we get there in a few years. But right now... Just kidding, just kidding. Um, Last week in our study, we actually began to see the children of Israel fight their first and greatest battle in the Promised Land, which was the Battle of Jericho. We called it their greatest battle because archaeology tells us that Jericho was the strongest stronghold of the enemy in the Land of Promise. As we said last week, it rose from the floor of the plains of Jericho and stood before the armies of Israel like an intimidating, invincible fortress, just like there are things in our lives that become our personal Jerichos. Remember now, these things Paul said were written for our learning in the Old Testament. We can learn principles. There are things that God is using to speak to us on a spiritual level that uh, we can glean from and use in our own personal walk with him. And every one of us in this room has got our own personal Jericho. I mean, something that just seems to overshadow you, intimidates you, something you think you're never going to have victory over. I mean, it just stands there like this invincible fortress. And we said these things take many different forms. They could take the form of a a Jericho of alcohol or drugs, a Jericho of pornography, a Jericho of materialism or pride or anger or something else. But it's an enemy stronghold. That seems stronger and more unbeatable than anything else you may face in your Christian life. A fortress that stands in the way of you in victory, and it becomes your greatest challenge, your biggest obstacle that tries to stop you from taking hold of all that God God has promised you in Christ. And so we are looking at this story, yes, historically, but we want to see it, though, in the spiritual principles that God is trying to teach us through it. And I see three things come through, three spiritual principles, Simple, yet powerful principles that God had Israel used to fight the battle of Jericho. I think principles that we can use to fight against our own personal Jerichos. And I see three principles here. We've looked at the first two last week, but simply they're this. The strategy God gave them, the silence they walked in, and the surrender they obeyed with. Now, quick review. The strategy God gave them, we find this in the first five verses, And it simply was this. God told Joshua, you're going to take the army, you're going to wake up early, you're going to march around the city once, go home. You're going to do that for six days. Every morning, going to get up, march around the city once in silence, only the priests blowing the ram horns after you march around the city once, go home. On the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times, and then the priests are going to give a long blast on the trumpets, And everyone is going to then shout. And when everyone shouts as the trumpets are blasting, the walls of Jericho are going to fall down and you go in and take the victory. Well, what immediately strikes us is the utter foolishness of the strategy that God gave them in fighting this battle. But it's what the Bible calls the foolishness of God. 
Now, as we said last time, this doesn't mean that God is foolish. We know that. It just simply means that sometimes God will use foolish-sounding tactics and strategies to bring about his purposes. Things that man thinks are foolish. Why does he do it? So that no flesh glories in his presence. Every once in a while, and, and the norm is common sense, good judgment, right? So we don't rush into every situation in life doing weird stuff. But every once in a while, God will have a set aside common sense, good judgment, what seems to make perfect sense in this situation, to do something crazy, something that sounds foolish. He does it because he wants us to know that, you know what, he doesn't need us. He allows us to serve him, and we feel a part of the work. But honestly, he doesn't need us. And every once in a while, he'll do something so foolish that goes beyond human comprehension in a way, so that everyone knows that this was something God did. Because, come on, march around the city six times, once a day, seventh day, seven times, shout, the walls fall down. Come on. Nobody, after they read that, would go, that Israel won that battle. They're tough soldiers. That's why they won that battle. No. Everyone would say, there's no way they did that. It had to be God. And that's the point, right? But listen. Don't stumble over the strategy. Don't focus on the strategy or you missed the point here. The strategy was secondary. What was primary was their faith in God himself to give them victory no matter what he said to do. Yes, but why did it have to be so foolish? Well, again, I think it was because he didn't want it to appeal to their macho pride as soldiers. But in fact, he designed this strategy to actually humiliate the warrior in them. You see, he wanted to force this army on this first battle to learn to walk humbly with their God. Not to get all puffed up with pride. If he would have given them a tremendous military victory, stormed the walls, you know, and fight, like you know, and they would have done that and got the victory, they would have been puffed up. Look at us. We're a tough army. And guys, you know what? This first battle, I'm, I'm going to have you do something really ridiculous. So when I give you the victory, you realize it isn't you. It's the Lord. And I get the glory because humility and faith are the cornerstones of the victorious life. And that's what God was trying to build into them. And look, when facing the Jerichos in our lives, we can either lean on our own human understanding and logic and plan our strategy and ask God to then bless what we've figured out. And we often do that, don't we? We figure out the situation, and here's what I think we should do. All right, now, Lord, bless my plans here because I think it's a good plan. God said, I don't want your plan. I want to do what I want to do. See, but if we'll take the time to pray and wait on God for his guidance and then follow his instructions, regardless of how unorthodox or illogical or foolish it may seem, he will work the situation out the way he wants to work it out. So the first principle here was a strategy that God gave them, which is just nothing more than seeking God for his will and doing whatever he says. Secondly, we see the silence they walked in. And we see these in ver- this uh, principle in verses 6 through 11, which I'm not going to read. We read last week that portion. But God told Joshua the people were to march around the city once a day for six days and then seven times the seventh day in silence, in silence. Only the priests were to be blowing the ram's horns trumpets, but the soldiers were to remain silent. Now, there were about 500,000 soldiers here. That's a lot of guys to keep quiet. And the reason they marched in perfect silence, I believe, was because they were absolutely serious about this battle. It wasn't a game to them. In fact, at this point, I'm not even convinced at all that they knew what the whole deal was going to be. And to not obey God in the smallest detail of the instructions he gave them, in their minds, could have meant their lives. 
and not just their lives, but the enemy defeated them as soldiers. They were coming after their wives and kids next. There was a lot writing on this, and they wanted to make sure that they followed God's instructions to the letter, even as we need to be very careful that we follow God's instructions to the letter in the things he's told us to do. Look, we all face problems. We all face crises, and that's a part of life, right? But God has given to us in his word instructions for how to live and uh, what to do in case problems arise. I mean, as I said at the first service, any good manufacturer that produces a product, especially a technical product like a stereo system or a computer system or whatever, always includes with the product a manufacturer's handbook, right? It's the instruction manual. And there's always a part in the back for troubleshooting when problems arise, right? Now, I don't know about you. When I'm setting up something highly technical, I got that, those instructions spread out, and I'm following them right to the letter because I, I don't want any extra parts, all right? Uh, I don't want to turn it on and it blows up, okay? I want to make sure I follow everything exactly the way the manufacturer has instructed me so that the thing works the way it's designed to work. We are God's creation. If you will, he's the manufacturer. And he has included with his creation a manufacturer's handbook called the Bible. And it's got everything we need for life and godliness. It teaches us how to live and how to conduct ourselves. And there's different sections for when problems arise, here's what we do and here's what God has said. You know what people do, though, when they have problems today? They're really not in the Bible for the most part. They toss it aside, and then their lives don't work right. Their marriages don't work right. Their families are falling apart. Everything is crumbling. And they come to me, and I say, well, are you in the Bible? Well, no. Well, do you realize that God has addressed this very issue in his word? Here, let me show you. Yeah, I read that years ago, but, you know, I'm really, I don't know if I want to do that. Well, then you know what? If your life and marriage and family and ministry and everything else is not working the way God designed it to as a Christian, guess what? The problem's not with God, it's with us. we got to get back to the basics, right? But also, this whole idea of them walking in silence, as I said last week, intrigues me because there is something about silence that's essential in the process of victory. I think as God had them walk around that city for seven days, I think it forced them to concentrate on God. I think it really caused them to have time to meditate on him, on his power, on his promises, on his faithfulness. We live in a world that's inundated with noise and we're super busy and we seldom take the time to get alone with God and just quietly meditate on him. And that's why it's so important that when we are facing a a sizable problem, that you take some time, get in the word, get into a quiet place, Read the word, remind yourself of God's promises, and take a little time just to meditate on God, on his faithfulness, on his goodness. When I do that, it strengthens my heart for whatever I'm facing. Like David, when he and his men came back to their city of Ziklag, and the enemy, the Amalekites, had come, and they had sacked the city, burned it to the ground, taken the women and children hostage, and were gone. And it says that every David's men were beside themselves. So was David with grief, so much so that they talked of stoning David. And what did he do? David went away somewhere, and he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He spent a little time quietly meditating on the faithfulness of God before he started to pray. So, first of all, the strategy that God gave them, the silence that they walked in, and now number three is what we really want to start this morning, the surrender they obeyed with. Let me just start by reading verse 12 to verse 14. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, Then seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to camp, 
So they did six days. Now, the third thing that strikes me in the story was the absolute surrender that these people obeyed God with, so unlike their forefathers in the wilderness, right? In the wilderness, those folks wouldn't obey God for anything, it seemed. They were always murmuring and complaining and rebelling. I think this generation learned from their father's mistakes. You don't want to do that. You don't want to live that way. Hey, sin beats you up, right? The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. Sin beats us up. And you know what? If a person will not give glory to God voluntarily, God's going to get glory from their life indirectly. What do you mean? Well, if God's going to hold you up as an example of how not to live, if you're going to live in rebellion, and he puts a circle around you with an X through it and says, look at this guy. Or look at this gal. See what disobedience has caused in their life? You don't want to be like that. Because I want to bless you. I want to, I want to be with you. I want to pour upon you all the blessings I desire to give to you as a, as a father. But I can't bless you when you're walking in sin. So I, I just see here that as we have moved, they have moved into the promised land, which represents the life of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit is all about surrender and obedience. As opposed to the life of the flesh, which is all about murmuring, complaining, unbelief, etc. But here, this whole thing speaks of faith. This whole conquest that they enjoyed with Jericho. And let me say, faith is essential for any victory that we enjoy as the people of God. But also, something we forget sometimes, obedience is an essential element of true faith. And they both have to be working together if God is going to work on our behalf. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, we read about this Jericho thing. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled seven days. Now, don't misunderstand. Faith by itself didn't bring down the walls of Jericho, folks. Okay? There is no power in faith to do anything because faith is not a power. Listen, faith is a pathway. What do you mean? The power is in God to do miracles. But our faith in God, Mark 11:22, as Jesus said, our faith in God, and our faith in what he has promised becomes the pathway or the conduit that allows the power of God to flow from him into our lives to do his work. Don't forget that. There are some who are trying to tell you that faith is a force. And have faith in your faith. No, Jesus said in Mark 11:22, have faith in God. And if you do, you can move mountains, but it's God doing the work. We need to understand that. Their faith, although the Bible says by faith the walls fell, it wasn't their faith that knocked the walls down. It was their faith that they, they put their trust in God. God knocked those walls down. However, even faith in God is powerless to do his work if it isn't coupled with obedience. James said faith without works is what? It's dead. Again, Hebrews 11.30. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, listen, after they were encircled for seven days. Well, that's what God told Joshua to do, right? So before the walls fell, before victory came, they first had to have faith and coupled with obedience, and they marched as God told them to march, and then God gave them the victory. Again, faith without obedience is dead. I mean, those people could have stood there indefinitely, staring at those walls and commanding them by their faith to come crashing down, and they could have whipped up, you know, how we tend to do it. We kind of whip up our faith, you know, and they could have been whipping up their faith and go, okay, I'm ready. Walls fall down. And I'll tell you one thing, those walls would have never fallen down if their faith wasn't coupled with obedience, because no obedience equals no power, and no power, of course, renders faith ineffective and meaningless. Now, I'm not talking about temporary obedience that we often offer God, you know. Obedience that obeys for a while, 
then quits when things don't happen quickly enough, or selective obedience, where I only pick and choose what I want to do and what God has said. See, selective obedience, um, temporary obedience, these are not the kinds of faith that are going to bring down strongholds. The kind of faith that brings down strongholds is faith that's rooted in total obedience to all that God has said for as long as it takes to get the job done. I mean, we're talking about absolute surrender and submission to the will of God. That sounds like a lot of work. Well, if somebody has said, you're going to only get out of it what you put into it. I mean, there's a lot of people who are only putting a little bit into their walk with God, and they're only getting a little bit out. It's not that God doesn't want to give them more. It's not that God doesn't want to use them more or elevate them to a, to a higher level in their walk with him. It's just that as much as we put in, that's what we're going to get out, basically. I mean, draw close to God, he'll, he'll draw close to you. You know, we often pray about things, and we're waiting on heaven. But heaven is often waiting on us to get serious, right? And to stop offering God lip service and partial obedience and selective obedience and doing our own thing, basically, and then asking God to... No, what we need to do is understand if you want to walk in victory, if you want to know the victorious life, it's absolute, complete surrender, and not for a day or for a week. I'm talking day by day, week after week. It has to be a way of life. has to be. Now, listen, you're not going to appreciate the depth of surrender and obedience that these people walked in if you fail to understand one important thing that might be overlooked here. I touched on it last week. Let me revisit that. And that is this. We really don't get any indication from the text. And I've read it several times to just confirm this. All right, We don't get any indication from the text that the soldiers knew the whole battle strategy of God in fighting this battle. We know in verse 2 God took Joshua on the side and laid out the whole deal for him. March around the city once a day for six days, seven days, seven days, seven times, blow the trumpet, and so on. God told Joshua the whole battle strategy, but it doesn't appear as though Joshua told his men the whole battle strategy. We read in verse 10, Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth, listen, until the day I say to you, shout, then you shall shout. When that day would come, it doesn't appear that he told them that piece of information up front. Now think about this for a second, right? It seems as though Joshua only gave them orders for each day, which was to wake up early, march around the city once in silence, and then go back to camp. It seems that Joshua never told the people how many days they were going to be marching around the city once, or for that matter, what was going to happen when he finally told them to shout. They were given their instructions one day at a time. And at the end of their assignment for that day, having marched around the city once, they were told to go back to camp. And each day, at the end of their march, nothing happened. They marched around the walls. They went back to camp. The walls were still standing. Nobody had surrendered. They didn't seem any closer to victory or conquest than they had the day before. And day after day, they obeyed Joshua, who was obeying God, And day after day, there was absolutely no evidence that anything was happening. Ever been there? You're trying to obey God with all your heart, faithfully. You have been living for God faithfully, and you have been praying about someone's salvation, maybe a spouse or a child or somebody dear to you. You have been praying about some bad habit or something else that's your Jericho. And you have been, you know, you have been literally marching around this thing for you don't know how long. And you have been doing exactly what God has told you to do. And you know what? Day after day, nothing seems to be happening. You have to trust, first of all, that something is happening, even though you don't see it. Remember Habakkuk? 
God, I pray and I pray and I pray. Nothing happens. The nation doesn't repent. Nothing seems to be changing. God says, Habakkuk, just because you don't see things happening doesn't mean I'm not working. In fact, if I was to tell you what I'm doing, you wouldn't believe it for the magnitude. So be faithful, right? But here's another thing. To make matters worse, as they walked around the city every day and so on, nothing was seeming to happen. To make matters worse, I'm convinced, we don't see this in the story, but I'm convinced, knowing human nature, after a few days, the enemy, no doubt looking down on the children of Israel from atop the walls, began to mock them and make fun out of them. I mean, what a spectacle. Think about it for a minute, all right? It's day one, right? You're in Jericho. The walls, the gates are shut up. You're on top of the, you know, there's the walkway and all. You're on top of the wall looking, and all of a sudden, here comes this daybreak, and you see the armies of Israel marching toward Jericho, blowing these trumpets, right? You're thinking, oh, we've had it. Here it comes. We've had it. Here they come, closer, closer. Start marching around the city. They march around the city, and all of a sudden they march off into the distance. You're thinking, man, what was that all about? That, that was weird. What, what, what is that? Second day, daybreak, here they come again. Blowing the horns, people marching. Okay, yesterday we're just scoping this out, and this is it now. Now we've had it. March around the city. All of a sudden they go back to camp. Well, think about it. If you're one of the guys up on the wall about the fourth or fifth day, you're start, this is starting to strike you as a little funny. And, and I'm convinced as they, as they were doing this march around the walls of the city that the enemy was looking down going, you guys look ridiculous. Look at you guys. Look at these idiots. Look at them. And I'm sure they were taunting, trash talking, you know, down from the walls. You know, and I'll tell you this. As the enemy mocked and ridiculed them unmercifully, think about it. You're a soldier now. Soldiers don't like to mess around. Soldiers want to get the job done. Soldiers don't want to procrastinate. Look, pull the sword. Let's go in. Let's get these guys, right? Now, you're a soldier. And your commanding officer who's gotten his orders directly from God has told you what to do. About the third or fourth day now, people are starting to laugh at you, starting to mock you. I mean, you know... Think about it. Their continued obedience became all the more frustrating and humiliating. Look, it isn't always easy obeying what God has said. Especially today, because things have gotten so bad, the culture has gotten so dark, sin is so rampant, that for a a Christian who desires to honor God with their life and do everything God has said, you're a laughingstock of the world. And yet you have those who want to remain faithful and loyal to God. Young people that do not want to have sex before they get married. People that are, are taking whatever excess they have, and money is tight, but, but taking whatever extra they have and giving it to the church or to missions. Or that woman or that man stuck in a bad marriage, and everyone is telling them bail, but they want to honor God and hang in there. Look, the world is going to look at these people, us, and they're going to mock us and ridicule us because to them this seems stupid. You're in a bad marriage. Get out. Don't you want to be happy? Isn't it about your happiness? What do you mean you're not having sex before marriage? How do you know that's the right one if you don't have sex with that person? Or whatever. You fill in the blank. See, we can expect the world to mock and refuse. Look, Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you. You try to be of the world, and you know what? The world will act like it loves you, but behind your back, they're going to talk about you. So look, be faithful to God. Be loyal to God. Who cares what the world thinks? It only matters to me what my Savior thinks of me because he's the only one I care about. He's the only one I'm going to stand before someday and hear him say either you blew it or you were a faithful servant. And he's the only one I care about. 
So the world is, expect the world to mock you when you seek to obey God. But it's all designed by God, listen, to see if you're going to keep going and finish what he has told you to do. And that's why I believe God made them go through this protracted marching deal, seven days. I believe it was to test the endurance of their faith and obedience. Look, it's not enough to obey God for a while in the face of a difficult situation, but then grow impatient when he doesn't act as quickly as we would like or in precisely the way that we would like. And so, you know what? We get impatient. We pull back from what God has said. We begin to take things into our own hands, work out our own strategy, and guess what we do in the process? We mess things up pretty badly oftentimes. And I believe that God wanted to teach them and all of us through them the importance of following his directions every day no matter how long it takes to see victory. Because the battle was not theirs, it was God's. And the Bible says that God has a time for every purpose he works under heaven. Commentator and author Arthur W. Pink, with regard to this, said, and I quote, Two things are required for us, or of us. Adhering strictly to the directions which God has given us, trustfully and hopefully waiting for his blessings upon the same, patient must have her perfect work. Thus it was with Israel here. They fainted not because the walls of Jericho fell not the first or second or even the fifth or sixth day. Nor did they take matters into their own hands and resort to another method, end quote, as we often do. See, God is testing our perseverance. Anybody can offer God temporary obedience, and if it doesn't work out quickly, then I'm going to do my own thing or I'm going to give up and walk away. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 37, verse 34. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. Well, in that context, the land is just his promises, right? You want to inherit the promises of God in your life? Well, wait on him and keep his way. But that's the problem. It's our failure to wait on the Lord because of our own impatience that causes us often to depart from his way to go our own way. And then the process to bring a lot of shame and regret into our lives. Even as Isaiah said in Isaiah 49, verse 23, God speaking said, They shall not be ashamed who wait on me. You know, God is saying to all of us, look, I'm working things out. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. I'm not trying to mess you up. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to work things out to give you the best future possible. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 says, But you're going to have to wait on me. Because God says, I have a time for every purpose under heaven. My ways are not your ways. And you're going to have to learn to be patient because my timing is perfect. And if you try to rush my program and take things into your own hands and try to work it out, guess what? You're going to wind up with a mess on your hands. You're going to bring a lot of shame and regret into your life. But if you wait on me, you'll never be ashamed. And I will give you victory and fulfill every promise I've given to you in my time. He makes all things beautiful in his time. Well, I'll just paraphrase the last few verses in chapter 6, verses 15 to 27. Some of it deals with Rahab and the promise that Joshua made to her, so you can read chapter 2 again. But they did that very thing. They went ahead, and Joshua every day commanded them at sunrise, get up, put your armor on, let's go. Marched around the city once, went back to camp. Every day, six days, seventh day, they marched around seven times, and Joshua said to the priest, now blow the ram's horns and shout, he told the people. And, of course, they all shouted with a great shout, and the walls came crashing down. It's interesting, as we see so many people today who are just so unwilling to accept what the Bible has said because they don't accept miracles. All right? 
So they come up with these bizarre and crazy ex- explanations for things. I've heard um, people say, well, you know, it wasn't a miracle of the walls when they fell. It was, here's what happened. When the priests blew on those trumpets, that one long blast, and the people began to shout the vibrations, you see. The vibrations from the trumpets and the shouting caused the walls to begin to vibrate, and they collapsed. Well, I got in my notes, LOL, okay? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Archaeology has confirmed that those walls fell backwards. Again, God's way of just, you know, when archaeology finds these things, God didn't want anyone to think, well, that story is ridiculous. They just went in there and they took the city. No, God had the walls fall outwards to show that they weren't stormed from without. They fell from within. God pushed those walls down. But archaeology has shown that the walls around Jericho were actually two separate walls, an inner and an outer wall separated by 15 feet. The outer wall was like 80 feet high and some believe as, as thick as 300 feet. These were not, people lived up on the tops of the wall. Again, chapter 2, Rahab lived up. The real estate in, in Jericho was small, about 325 square uh, acres. So they went up, you know, they built up and they laid boards across the two walls and they built houses on the wall. These were not little walls. It takes Less faith just to believe what God said about it than to believe a goofy explanation like that. Look, I want to bring this to a close by just reminding everyone here who is a Christian that the New Testament calls us the soldiers of Jesus Christ who is our commanding officer. In fact, the word Jesus, the name Jesus, is exactly the same word for Joshua. Yeshua is just the Hebrew of the Greek Jesus. That's all it is. So, so Joshua back then represents our Jesus, all right, in a symbolic way. So we have a Joshua, Jesus Christ, who leads us in the battle. And we are fighting in a war where there are many enemy strongholds that must, I underline that, must be conquered. We see them everywhere. There are strongholds of evil in our land, in the church, and we must confess even in our lives. And the walls surrounding the enemy are high. The gates seem to be securely shut. And the enemy seems invincible and unbeatable. How do we have victory? What do we do against such powerful enemies like these? Well, many of God's people seem to have abandoned the instructions that he has given us in his word for fighting this war as being kind of outdated, irrelevant, even foolish. Think that we can use these old biblical techniques to reach this modern generation with all the modern problems and all the, the rampant sin and so on. I mean, you know, that was great for those folks back then, what God said, but we need new methods. We need to do new things to reach this generation, new modern techniques and strategies. This, I believe, has been the great mistake of the church in our day. And the reason why the church is failing so miserably in winning the culture war against the forces of evil in our nation. See, we fail to understand that God doesn't want new methods. He wants new men and women. Resourcefulness is not the issue. Revival is. The answer to conquering over the Jerichos in the world isn't to call a committee meeting and figure out the best way to get people into church, you know, leaning on our own human wisdom, understanding, and so on, trying to brainstorm and strategize in ways that we can use to attract people in the church. Many churches have put forth a lot of effort, a lot of time, spent a lot of money on various programs and even contests. I mean, I I can't tell you the, the number of contests I've heard of over the years. Some of them get pretty elaborate. Some of them are as simple as the church is going to give prizes out to the people that bring the most new people to church in a given period. I've heard heard more than one church that has offered to have the pastor 
swallow a live goldfish. For every new person you bring to church on, a, on that particular Sunday, I don't know, Goldfish Sunday or whatever it might be. Uh, I mean, who wouldn't want to see their pastor swallow live goldfish? We're going to pack the place out. Folks, it isn't hard, to, and don't get any ideas, first of all. It isn't, it isn't hard to pack this place out. Again, if we offered and advertised free beer and pizza every Sunday, we would pack this joint. That is not the issue, though. How many bodies you can stuff in a given area? We want them to come because the Spirit is leading them. The Bible says the Lord will add to his church daily those being saved. It's not my responsibility to add to the church. It's only my responsibility as a leader in the church to do what God's told me to do. To continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Very simple formula, right? And if we do those things, and we go out there and tell people about Jesus, God will add to his church daily those being saved. You know, you would think after years of trying these goofy things, that the church would wise up. And start getting back to what God said, right? No, 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 it's, it's adapted. Okay, those didn't work, so here's what we need to do. We need to go out there and canvas the community and ask people what they want in the church. And so they've done that. And because of what unbelievers want in the church, they have, they have developed their services in such a way that there's plenty of activities, plenty of entertainment, and people will come to church if you do these things. My question is, how many of them are really coming to Christ? Now, I'm not saying none of them do. I'm just saying, though, when you use carnal methodologies to bring people into church, you've got to use carnal methodologies to keep them in church because people get bored easy. And so that's why the churches that do this, after a while, they run out of ideas. And it gets more and more bizarre and crazy because people get tired of the same old thing. So you've got to do some, some new crazy thing or something crazier than the last gimmick. Look, this isn't Cirque du Soleil. I'm not interested in entertaining you with wild acts and things. I just want to give you the simple teaching of God's word. And, and, and you know what? Come together as God has told us to. And the whole while, the church has been employing these techniques, marching around the enemy stronghold. Guess what? He's been up on top looking down at us, laughing at us, and mocking us. Because he knows we're no threat to his kingdom. He knows the walls of his strongholds will never fall through gimmicks and, and, and lame worldly programs and weak methodologies and, and all these things. No, it's not going to happen. Because Satan really doesn't care if you come to church as long as you don't come to Christ. And folks, big churches are not necessarily, I'm not saying all big churches are bad. Some of them are dynamic and right on. I'm just saying a big church is not necessarily an evidence that a church is having victory over the devil. If you so water down the gospel to bring people in the doors, they're going to come. But you know what's going to happen? You're going to give them the false impression that they're saved when they're not. And you're reinforcing their unbelief. They think they're okay with God now because you've made them think that way. And they haven't made a commitment to Christ. They haven't fully repented of their sins. And now you've got a church full of religious unbelievers. And tell me, that doesn't water down your church. Give me a church of 100 on-fire, spiritual believers. I will take that over a church of 10,000 any day who are just lukewarm pew-sitters. What is the church going to wake up and understand that? As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, we are fighting a spiritual war, and you don't fight a spiritual war with carnal or physical weapons. The weapons of our warfare, Paul said, are not carnal. They're not worldly, not, not physical, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of the devil's strongholds. And whether we're talking about the strongholds of the world or the church or even in our own lives, these weapons are, always have been, and always will be the same. It's prayer, 
and the Word of God. All right, let me just end. But I want to personalize this. Let me say once again that we all face our own personal Jerichos. And often, there is one stronghold of the flesh that seems to rise above the others. A stronghold that has just so intimidated us over the years. You know, one that we just can't seem to have victory over. It just kind of stands there and mocks us, you know. I dare you to have victory over me, that kind of thing. Sometimes it's a bad habit or something like that, alcohol, drugs, whatever. Sometimes it's an unsafe spouse, we'll say, that's hindering everything God wants for you and your marriage and so on. A spouse that you've prayed for for years who seems locked in this stronghold of the devil, of unbelief. And it's a stronghold that you've been praying against for years and nothing has happened. You're getting discouraged. You're ready to give up. Let me just encourage you, don't give up. Because where else are you going to go? You're going to go back to the world for its wisdom and its advice on how to solve this problem? You don't turn to the wisdom of the world. You turn to the power of God. And I suggest that you start right here and apply the strategy that God gave Israel for bringing down this literal Jericho. You apply it into your life, the Jerichos that you face. First of all, what do you do? Well, they marched around it several times, didn't they? March around your Jericho. Oh, man, now you're getting weird. What do you mean? Go out in my front yard and walk around in circles? Put my cigarettes in the ground and walk around in circles? No. I'm speaking figuratively, okay? Here's the deal. Often these Jerichos that we have, these strongholds, we're embarrassed by them because they've been there for years. And so what we try to ignore them. We try to kind of, you know, excuse them. God doesn't want us ignoring them or excusing them. God doesn't want us making treaties with the flesh. He wants you to march around that thing. What does that mean? Take a good look at it. Acknowledge it's there. Lord, this is disobedience in my life. I can't hide it. I'm not going to try to excuse it. Here it is, Lord. It's always been here. It's the one thing in my life I can't seem to have victory over. God says the first thing you do is you walk around it, take a good look at it, and acknowledge it's sin, and then you bring your heart to the Lord. Secondly, you realize that God is with you. He is no, you're not alone in this battle. Remember, they carried the Ark of the Covenant with them as they circled the city, right? The Ark of the Covenant went with them around the city, right? As we have already said, the Ark of the Covenant represented two things. It was the throne of God on the earth, so it represented the presence of God, number one. Number two, inside the Ark of the Covenant was the tablets of the law, the Word of God. That's why it was also called the Ark of the Testimony. The testimony of God was the Word of God. So who went with them in this march? God and his word. And let me tell you something. When you're facing your own personal Jericho, you need to realize you're not alone. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's with us. His presence is with us. And he has given us his word that we might have victory. And then you do as the psalmist said in Psalm 47, verse 1. O clap your hands, all you peoples, and shout unto God with a voice of triumph. If you do that, I believe the walls of your Jericho will fall. You say, but yes. But again, I've been marching around the walls of my Jericho for years, and nothing has happened yet. Well, here, let me just end with this. Have you been marching in faith, clinging to the promises of God in his word, and praising him for the victory that he has promised, listen, before it becomes a reality? Notice, they gave out a shout of victory before the walls fell, didn't they? They shouted, and then God brought the walls down. That shout was a shout of faith. Look, in our lives, we have some strongholds, again, that are very tough. They seem invincible. Nothing is hard for God. And if we will take a good look at them and not be afraid of them, not, not be afraid of them, but recognize that God is with you. 
He wants you to have faith. He wants you to praise him. Give a shout of victory before the walls come down. Because that's a sign of faith, and faith releases the power of God. Faith coupled with obedience, right? And doing all that he has said. Look, if you face these strongholds with fear and not with faith, they're never going to fall. Remember, the obstacle is not the problem. It's our attitude towards it that's the problem. We need to change our attitude towards the bad habits or the strongholds of the enemy in our life. We need to stop being afraid of them. We need to confront them. We need to march around them by faith and claim the victory in Jesus' name that he has promised us at Calvary. And we need to shout with a shout of triumph. We need to praise our God. We need to stop being afraid and feeling like, you know, we'll never have victory. We need to start manifesting the heart of Paul the Apostle who said we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. So start acting like it. That's what we need to do. And don't forget one last thing. As I was putting this study together, I came across one quote, and I thought, you know, I really want to add that at the end. Because I do think there's a lot to think about in this one quote that we also need to incorporate into the battles that we fight for the Lord. It comes from a very godly preacher whose name was Robert Murray McShane. Very godly Scottish preacher. And he was writing a letter to a missionary friend of his. And he said this, and I quote, Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In good measure, according to the purity of and perfections of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awesome weapon in the hands of a holy God. End quote. So while you're ta- thinking about victory and so on, remember this. It is God's responsibility to give you victory. It's your responsibility to obey what he has said and to draw close to Jesus every day. Because if we're living in carnality and sin, we can't expect God is going to come and help us in anything. We need to get right with him. We need to get committed to him, fully surrendered to him, and then obey him in all that he has said. And I guarantee you that you're going to start seeing your own personal Jerichos fall. So these are some basic principles that God has given to us in this story that I think we can apply into our lives. And if we do faithfully, I believe God will cause those strongholds to fall. To God be the glory. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you so much, Lord, for your patience. Father, forgive us if we have been playing games. Forgive us if we haven't taken the battle seriously. Forgive us, Lord, if we haven't strapped on the whole armor every day and and had the mind of a soldier. Forgive us, Father, if we have given you partial obedience or selective obedience. Work in us, Lord, that we would be all that you desire us to be, that we would follow your instructions to the letter and all you've told us to do. That, Lord, we might see you working in our lives and then through our lives in a very powerful way. Father, we thank you. Our Jerichos, are no, we're no match for them. But, Lord, we don't fight against them. The battle belongs to you. Give us the grace to just do what you've commanded us to do, and you'll take care of the rest. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.